Right, let us uh, make a start. Um, we have various bits of uh, technological gizmos going. You'll see we've already got a poll going. We're going to have a before poll and then just see if any minds change during the course of the, the evening. So we'll have an after poll as well. Um, there is a hashtag I have to announce. It's, uh, you may have already got it. It's uh, hash LSE housing, uh, which you can have fun tweeting or whatever. Um, and also, uh, if you go to Facebook, uh, if you're a Facebook user, uh, you will find that uh, if you type in Britain's housing crisis causes and cures, there's a page there, and you can uh, be invited to write something, which could be a comment about what we're talking about, or it could be a question. And at the end, we will try and curate the Facebook questions as an additional way of uh, getting questions. But never fear, if you're not a Facebook user, we'll also have the tried and trusted roving microphone. Uh, so this is uh, an LSE inaugural lecture for my colleague, Professor Christian Hilber. Um, Swiss by origin, um, trained in Switzerland and in the United States at the University of Pennsylvania, where he spent three years. He then moved in 2002 to Fannie Mae, um, where he was a housing economist. Uh, some of you may have seen the film The Big Short or even read the book The Big Short. So Christian actually was a sort of housing economist who could have taken part in the big short because he wrote a paper pointing out the incredible risks that were being taken with the subprime mortgages at that time. But of course, being an academic, he was A, risk-averse and did not bet the farm on a big short, and B, nobody took any notice of him because uh, he was, uh, wasn't convenient to hear the message. Um, so, but economists do sometimes make uh, the right call. And it's a, re it's a really good... Uh, great pleasure to uh, introduce Christian to you. I was on his interviewing panel when I was head of department in 2003, and he was, took over from me the, uh, the directorship of the, our very um, high-quality and uh, competitive uh, masters in real estate economics and finance, of which he's made a huge success. And, of course, the other thing is that he illustrates... Uh, there's an academic article which probably only about three people in this room know called Power Couples, published in 2000, which demonstrates why, as you have increasing skills by both men and women, uh, partnerships are attracted to larger cities because they need a bigger labor market for both their skills to be properly uh, employed. I'm an example of this myself. My wife is a very specialized academic. I'm a very specialized academic who spent 30 years trying to find jobs in the same city. Only a city as big as London can do that for you. But Christian is actually a sort of a global power couple in that his wife is uh, Japanese uh, and a very specialized, highly qualified architect. So you need an environment in which multicultures can come together and you can have incredibly specialized uh, opportunities for work. And there's probably only about two cities in the world in which uh, the Hilber family could uh, fully exploit their very considerable uh, talents. And I'm very glad to say that London is one of them. So I'm very pleased that Christian is here. Midori is also here. Uh, and uh, take it away, Christian.
Okay, thank you very much. Okay, um, well, thank you very much, Paul, for the very nice introduction. Uh, thank you all for coming to this lecture um, to discuss the causes and possible cures of Britain's housing crisis. Um, let me start my presentation on a personal note, and that is that actually Paul chairing this uh, lecture is really fitting because Paul, as you already heard, uh, he was the head of department at that time, so he was uh, largely responsible for bringing me here to the LSE nearly 14 years ago. Uh, Paul was also my mentor um, throughout this time. And uh, lastly, he uh, sparked my interest in the economic impact of the British planning system. And this is what I will talk about today, among other things. So uh, let me stay with um, a personal note on our own housing history. So as Paul already said, we arrived in London back in 2003 from Washington, D.C. And when we arrived here, I thought, housing is incredibly expensive. When you look at, so in 1992 was the last trough of the housing cycle. Since 1992, house prices increased in nominal terms by 221% by 2003. And even in real terms, by 146%. So I thought that's pretty crazy. Um, I thought that's extremely risky. So what I knew from my research at Fannie Mae is that housing markets tend to be cyclical. And large cities in particular tend to be cyclical. And what I also knew from my research back then, at least for the United States, the typical cycle length is about 12 and a half, 13, 14 years. So looking at this figure, I thought, well, there must be a, a bust imminent in 2003. So I thought it's too risky to buy at that time. The other issue, of course, was that we didn't really have the deposit at that time. We may have had, we, we were lucky enough, we had some savings but we didn't really have the deposit to buy the type of house large enough in the right area with good schools for, because we were thinking of possibly having children of the right size for a family. So in the end, we had no choice, uh, but we ended up renting a tiny flat that, by the way, cost 50% more than our twice as big apartments in Washington, D.C., and we had to throw away half of our furniture. So that's my own little story of illustrating that we are all affected by this housing crisis. So, of course, it didn't end in 2003. 
if you look at this figure, what you see is that house prices have gone up uh, tremendously since then. There was the Great Recession and house prices in London corrected somewhat. But even at the trough of the Great Recession, house prices were still significantly higher than when we arrived in London back in 2003. And just look at the number today. House prices are up 611% in nominal terms and 274% in real terms compared to um, 1992. Okay, so of course this is only house prices. Um, if earnings increase at the same pace, then there is no problem. So let's have a look what happened to house prices relative to earnings. What you see here is again the same graph, but now you have house prices, the house price to earning ratio for London. And back in, in 1992, housing was actually still fairly affordable based on this measure. So the house price to earnings ratio was 2.9. When we arrived in London, it was 5.7. And we thought housing is really, really expensive and unaffordable. Today, it's 10.1. So we experience what it means when we arrived, but today the problem is much worse. Okay. So while you could say this is just a London phenomenon, but let's have a look. So what you see here is house prices to earning ratios across UK regions. And as you can see, it's true that London stands out. So the house price to earnings ratio is worse than London. It's generally pretty bad in the southeast of the country. But everywhere, in every single region in the UK, housing is less affordable today than it was back in the 1990s. So what about um, the international context? Is this, just, is this similar everywhere? So let's have a look at an international comparison. And what you see here is real house price growth between 1970 and 2015 for a selected number of countries. And as you see, the UK stands out. In no other country among those listed here, for which I found data, was the real house price growth stronger than in the UK. And what is also interesting is that New Zealand, Australia, and Canada also have very high real house price growth. Now that's a bit surprising because there is really a lot of land in those countries and not much building. There's virtually no construction, no, no, no built environment. It's, it's vast amount of land. But what these countries have in common is they are Commonwealth countries. And their planning system has similarities to the British planning system. So I will come back to this point later on. So my argument will be the planning system has a lot to do with what you see here. Okay, what about rents? Well, it's true that the rental cost has increased less since, since the 1990s than house prices. Still, the affordability for renters 
even for social renters, has uh, actually massively deteriorated. So what you see here is the average weekly social rent as a percent of the 10th percentile weekly pay. So this is the people at the bottom end of the income distribution. And you can see really affordability has massively deteriorated for the lowest income group in this country. So it's really across the board. It's not just for people wanting to get on the housing ladder to buy a home, it's also for private renters and it's also for social renters. Um, so the evidence, I think, is pretty overwhelmingly suggesting that we are facing unprecedented housing affordability crisis. And in fact, 80% of the British public agrees, according to a recent uh, opinion poll. And in fact, in 2015, admittedly that was prior to Brexit, um, Londoners said housing is the number one issue facing the capital ahead of transport and the economy. So, so far I have talked about house prices, rents and affordability. But what about new housing supply? What about uh, construction? So what you see here is both. The blue line is the real house price growth in the UK. The red line is the new permanent dwellings completed, both starting at 100% in 1970. So house price growth, as I already said, was staggering during this time period. Um, no other country, no other OECD country had a similar real house price growth during this time period. What happens in other countries when house prices grow is developers want to build more housing. They want to build more housing, but what we see here is actually housing construction has gone down. Housing construction is less than 50% today than what it was back in 1970. But you can't see it very well, but housing construction is cyclical. So in the late 80s it went up, then in the 90s it went down. In the, in the, in the early 2000s it went up, then there was the Great Recession, it went down, and now it's recovering again. But the general trend is massively declining construction. So I would argue supply is a key factor here. Okay, so this brings me to the causes of the crisis. What I want to do is I want to first pick up on the opinion poll that you did yourself at the beginning of the lecture. I want to um, look at what um, uh, uh, a recent opinion poll suggested what the key causes are of the housing crisis. Then I want to make a proposition, provide a little bit of theory, and then talk about evidence. So this is the public opinion poll um, uh, published in The Guardian in, in uh, April 2016. People were asked, which, if any of the following, do you think had a significant impact on Britain's housing crisis? 
And the number one and number two reasons given were immigration and foreign investors buying property. So that's what the public thinks are the main drivers. Now the case that I want to make today is it's actually things at the bottom of the ranking that are the main drivers of the crisis. So that we are all NIMBYs, not in my backyard residence, so that political economical factors are important and that there are too many restrictions on planning permission. So my proposition is the following. Strong house price growth, especially in London and the southeast, implies strong demand for housing. Now, if demand and house prices grow strongly over a long period of time, but construction during the same extended period falls markedly, this must imply somehow binding long-run supply constraints. So what I do now is one minute of microeconomics 101. If you, I know that the majority in this room are not economists and, you know, frankly, it's not that important. I, I try to illustrate the point using supply and demand framework, but if you are architect or sociologist and you're, you, you, you struggle with this graph, just think about something else for a minute <laughs> because I will, I will illustrate the same point with nice pictures later on. But the point I want to make is the following. So think about the world in which long-run supply is responsive. In other words, so this is the supply curve, this is the long-run supply curve. This long-run supply curve is pretty flat. If prices increase a little bit, developers start building a lot of new houses. This could be a world in which we are. If we are in such a world and you increase demand, so we have a strong demand growth, earnings grow, people have higher incomes, the demand curve shifts outwards. What happens if supply is responsive is the following. We will have lots of new houses, but we will have only a little bit of, of house price growth. Now, Consider uh, a different case. Let's assume long-run supply is unresponsive. So the supply curve is nearly vertical. Now we have the same thing again. The same demand increase. But what happens here is there is very little new construction and house prices grow massively. And the argument I'm making is we are in a world like this, especially in London and the Southeast. The long-run supply curve is incredibly unresponsive. And that explains to a large extent, obviously in, conjunct in conjunction with demand growth, why house prices have grown so strongly in, over the last couple of decades. So what I want to do in the next couple of minutes is to explore what factors 
constrain long-run housing supply or different, said differently, why is the supply curve nearly vertical in the UK and particularly in London and the southeast? So the first candidate is regulatory constraints. That is, constraints imposed by the planning system. Now, today's planning system was established in 1947 through the Town and Country Planning Act. Some key features of this uh, planning system are that development rights of landowners were expropriated in 1947. The Town and Country Planning Act designated use classes whereas the change of use requires development control permission, granted at the local level on a case-by-case -case basis. The aim of this planning system is, as it says, development control or containment. Now, this planning system is widely viewed as complex and inflexible. One issue is that development control decisions are made at the local level. Why is it an issue? Because it's subject to a consultation process at the local level that caters to local NIMBY pressures and strong vested interests. Um, as a consequence of this, it's difficult and time-consuming to obtain, obtain planning permission, and this is particularly true in local authorities adjacent to the Greenbelt or in local authorities that actually have Greenbelt land. There are other constraints, other regulatory constraints. I would categorize them in three groups. The first group is horizontal constraints, mainly green belts. It prevents, the green belt prevents London and other cities to grow horizontally, to grow outwards. Then you also have vertical constraints. Those are height restrictions and protected vistas of U corridors. What these constraints do is they prevent cities from growing vertically. Then lastly, we have preservation policies, conservation areas and listed buildings. What these policies do, they make it more difficult for cities to renew themselves. And the problem really is, um, in my view, it becomes problematic if all these three constraints are coming together. If you have a green belt, but not many other restrictions, then cities grow vertically if, if there is high demand. If there are height restrictions, cities grow outwards. But in London, part of the problem is that neither is possible. So they can't grow vertically, they, they can't grow horizontally, and it's difficult to renew cities um, because large parts are um, uh, pres are preserved. Now just to illustrate um, these constraints, what you see here is London's green belt and the green bits 
That's the green belt. Now, London's green belt has 516,000 hectares. That's 3.3 time, times the size of the greater London area itself. So we are not talking about the small ring around the city. We are talking about the huge area surrounding uh, the city of London. And in fact, 22 or 23% of the greater London area itself are green belts. Now let's zoom in a little bit and let's have a look at the city of London itself. So this uh, image I borrowed from Paul and his co-author, and what it shows is all the restrictions that are present in the city of London. So all the colors are some forms of restrictions. The white areas are essentially where you can build. Um, so the purple areas, for example, are conservation areas. So you see much of inner London is conservation areas where it's very difficult to change anything. And then we have the yellow bits. Those are the view corridors. Now let's uh, talk a little bit about these view corridors. I would argue that some views are absolutely worth protecting. So what you see here is the view from the Millennium Bridge uh, on St. Paul's Cathedral. I guess if I ask around here who has been on the Millennium Bridge and who has enjoyed this view, probably everybody would raise their hand, right? So, and millions of tourists go there to see um, St. Paul's Cathedral to, to, to enjoy this, this view. So I would argue this view has huge benefits and the opportunity costs are not very high. But now let's have a look at another view. Um, so this is the protected view from King Henry VIII's Mount uh, in Richmond Park. Now this expands 16 kilometers. So over these 16 kilometers, you need to have a free view on St. Paul's <coughs> Cathedral. So this is where King Henry VIII's Mount is. This is how it looks like. <laughs> so from, I think from this wooden post, you need to be able to see St. Paul's Cathedral. So this is if, it, if the weather is good, right? Most of the time you can't really see it because the weather isn't good enough. But it's not just that you can't build any tall buildings in this view corridor over these 16 kilometers. It's also that the backdrop of St. Paul's Cathedral is protected. So some of the most expensive real estate in the world is in, you know, in the Stratford-Liverpool Street area. Some of the most dynamic economic centers are located, firms are located there. And it's very difficult to build any tall buildings because of this view corridor. I would argue that this particular view corridor has huge opportunity costs and benefits probably only few. I mean, if I would ask around in this room who has been in Richmond Park and had this particular view this, through this holly hedging, my guess is not many people would raise their hands. Okay, so those were regulatory constraints. 
But of course, there aren't just regulatory constraints. There are also physical supply constraints. And I would distinguish two types of supply constraints, scarcity of open developable land. The scarcer the land is, the higher are the opportunity costs. The second type of physical constraints is topography. If, if slopes are becoming too steep, some research suggests if slopes are higher than 15%, it becomes very difficult and costly to build. So those are two alternative propositions. Could be regulatory constraints, could be scarcity of open developable land, could be topography that is responsible for uh, what we see in the data. So how can we test in practice? And I want to uh, refer to some of my own work here, um, together with my co-author, Walter Vermeulen, that was published last year in the Economic Journal. What we do in this paper is we use data from 353 local authorities in England. Um, we are missing one because we don't have data for that. For all the others, we have data for 35 years. So we use a 35-year span to um, explore the impact of these supply constraints on house prices. What we do is we exploit variation, spatial variation, in these three types of supply constraints, regulatory, scarcity of open developable land, and topography. We interact those local supply constraints with demand shifters, either local earnings or there are some, well, I don't want to go into technical details, endogeneity concerns. Uh, we use a different measure to address those concerns. And then we use some econometric techniques. Again, I don't want to bore you with the details to identify causal effects of local supply constraint measures on house prices. And let me uh, show you how these uh, supply constraints look like across England. So the map on the left, you see the average refusal rate for major residential projects measured between 1979 and 2008. And what you can clearly see is that the most restrictive areas in the UK are the South East and particularly the Greater London area and local authorities adjacent to the Greenbelt or with Greenbelt land. The other areas like uh, Birmingham or Boston, generally urbanized places, also tend to be more regulated. The second constraint share, uh, developable land that is developed, is in this middle map. And really, these constraints are confined to the big cities like London, Birmingham, Manchester, Liverpool. If we look at the topo topographical constraints, they're on the third map. I'm Swiss, so for me, the whole of England is pretty flat. Um, but uh, still, there are some areas, like in the west of England and in the north, that have uh, steep slopes. So we essentially run a horse race here. How important are these different constraints? And our main findings are that tight local planning constraints in part of England, like mainly in the southeast of the country, in, in conjunction with strong demand, are to a large extent responsible 
for the extraordinarily high house prices. I will illustrate how important they are in a minute. Local scarcity of developable land matters too, but it's quantitatively only important in the most urbanized places, London, Birmingham, Manchester. Topography matters in a statistical sense. So when we run our regressions, we find statistically significant effects. But in quantitative terms, these effects are very small. So this is, um, we were doing some simulations with our regression results, looking at what would happen if hypothetically we were relaxing all planning constraints in the average local authority in a country. And what would happen is that house prices in the average local authority would be about 35% lower. Then we ask the question, well, what would happen if land in the average local authority was abundantly available? What would happen is house prices would come an additional 10% down. So the total effect would be 45%. And what would happen if the average local planning authority, which doesn't really have steep slopes, was completely flat? House prices would come down another 3%. This is the same thing, but here you can see the house price dynamics since 1974. So what it suggests is that, so the blue line is what house price growth would look like if we had no regulatory constraints. And you can clearly see that housing would be much more affordable in the absence of regulatory constraints. So house prices in 2008 would have been 147,000 in, instead of 227,000. The other constraints matter too. And what I also should note is that even if you take away all constraints, so this is this line here, and you take away all local earning variations, still there would be some cyclicality. There is something to be explained by macroeconomic factors, like interest rates, or it could be supply constraints at the aggregate level. But really, most of it can be explained by these local supply constraints. Now, of course, it's neither feasible nor desirable to get rid of all planning restrictions. So what we have done here is another simulation. We have asked, what would happen if the southeast which is the most restrictive local authority, in, uh, the most restrictive region in England, had the restrictiveness of the Northeast. Now, the Northeast is the least restrictive region, but it's still extremely restrictive in an international context. And what we find is that had the Southeast the restrictiveness of the Northeast, house prices would be about 25% lower. So, what does that mean? Well, housing would still be expensive in London, uh, but it would make a huge difference if house prices were 25% lower.
So preliminary, some preliminary conclusions. Tight local planning constraints in conjunction with strong demand are to a large extent responsible for the housing affordability crisis. Physical constraints and macro variables such as interest rates, they matter as well, but they are not the main drivers. I want to talk about another related issue, another causal driver, and that is the lack of local fiscal incentives to develop. So this is something that you may not have thought about so far. But looking at the UK, one thing that's really quite extraordinary is the following. Local authorities have virtually no fiscal incentives to permit development. If a local authority permits a large-scale development project, they face infrastructure costs, they face service costs, the schools, local public schools will be more crowded, and there will be more congestion. There is more cars on the roads. But local authorities reap very little revenue. The only local tax is the council tax. And that's not a very important tax relative to all the taxes. In addition, this additional revenue, so if a local authority permits new development, is equalized away in the medium term through the so-called uh, central government grant system. In other words, local authorities have strong incentives to refuse, delay, or impose or maintain other types of regulatory constraints. Now, we have looked a little bit more into this, and one interesting thing about fiscal incentives is that there is big differences across countries. For example, the UK has virtually no fiscal incentives, as I just outlined. The US, for example, has a local property tax system that provides meaningful fiscal incentives at the local level. And Switzerland, my home country, has a system of local income taxes. So municipalities in Switzerland are fighting for good taxpayers, rich people. So they sown a lot of land at the outskirts of municipalities to attract taxpayers. In other words, in Switzerland, there are very strong fiscal incentives to permit development. Now the question is, does this matter? Does it affect house price growth? And does it affect residential development? I do not have, at this point, conclusive evidence, but I think I have suggestive evidence. So what you see here is, again, real house price growth in the UK versus the United States versus Switzerland. You also have London. So really, London is off the charts. House prices since 1975 increased by more than 300% uh, in real terms. But even the UK as a whole had an increase of more than 150%. Now, compare this to the United States. House prices since 1975 grew by 60%, and in Switzerland it's about 35%. I think this is suggestive that the planning system and local fiscal incentives have something to do 
with housing affordability. This is a different way of looking at it. So here, um, this is a recent work we have done. We looked at uh, the trade-off between house price growth and sprawl outside of functional urban regions. And what this is suggesting is that urban containment policies and lack of fiscal incentives comes at a price. So you can have containment, but you will have so countries that have containment policies and lack of fiscal incentives have high house price growth in real terms. So next question is, well, what are the implications of this? What are the implications of this for inequality? So who benefits from the status quo? Arguably, the winners of the system are long-term homeowners who have benefited from past capital gains for a long time. This is particularly true if they sell and move abroad, right? If you, if you live in a house, there are people living in London in two, three million pound houses, but they can't afford the heating bill. Um, so if you really want to benefit from the system, you have to sell this three million house and move to Spain where housing is much less expensive. Who else arguably benefits from the system is the offspring of wealthy long-term homeowners. Who are the losers? Well, it's arguably the young, especially the young of non-wealthy parents and low-income households. This is particularly again true in London and the Southeast because the supply curve is most unresponsive in those areas. Housing, both owner-occupied housing and rental housing is increasingly unaffordable in those places. And what, what's the final outcome is that many young households, uh, many young people in London have to live with their parents. Um, or they have to live in really cramped spaces simply because they cannot afford to live anywhere else. So what's the link here to rising inequality? You could argue, well, everybody can own, right? So it's a free choice whether you own or rent. But the trouble is that many young households or most young households and low-income households in the UK, they face three types of constraints that prevent them from accessing on the owner-occupied housing ladder. The first constraint is down payment constraints. Young households of non-wealthy parents and low-income households struggle to save the deposit. They can't get the money together for the deposit to buy a house. So this recent newspaper article suggests eight out of 10 are stuck in the rental sector because they cannot raise the huge deposits being demanded by banks. The second type of constraint is what I would call liquidity constraints. Young and low-income households struggle to make the monthly mortgage payments. So even if you are lucky enough for some reason, so this newspaper article is from an underwear model who when they were very young made a lot of money so they do have the down payment together 
but they don't have enough income. The, the bank won't lend them money. And then there is a third constraint, and that constraint is hardly ever talked about, but I think it's really important. And that is the fact that if you are a low-income household, if you are young, you have little wealth, you cannot diversify your investment risk. If you are young, you have little saving, it's extremely risky to put all your money in one single asset. That's what you have to do, right? If you want to buy a house, you need to put all your wealth in one single asset, and not only that, you have to leverage it, like with a leverage of 80-90%. So that's the most, from a financial point of view, that's the most risky thing you can do. If house prices, if we have a bust, and busts happen ever so often, then if you buy at the wrong time, you lose everything. And that was the reason why we, for example, didn't buy back in 2003. I was very scared that I might lose all my, all my wealth. The problem is for low-wealth households, young households, you cannot diversify away this risk. If you are very wealthy, you have one house in your portfolio, you have stocks and you have bonds. But if you have low wealth, you can only buy a whole house. You can't buy 10% of a house. And that's a real problem. So, of course, the government has tried to address this problem. There are help-to-buy policies and shouldn't help to buy help young people to buy, you would think, right? So, yes, help to buy does help young people with down payment constraints. It's possible that they can get a mortgage. But it also pushes up demand for housing further, especially for the, you know, the entry-level homes, for that market. And in a setting with unresponsive supply, and I've argued that we are in such a setting where supply is very unresponsive, what it means is that house prices get pushed up even further. So what help to buy does, among other things, is it also raises house prices further. Because people have to take mortgages and need to have a certain um, loan-to-value ratio, it also means the debt levels go up. It also me means it's more difficult to make the monthly payments. And it means it increases this investment risk that I just talked about. As an aside, it also increases systemic risks for the central government and ultimately for all of us, the taxpayers. In the end, if there is a massive economic crisis, which with Brexit is not impossible, I would argue, and we have a house price crash, then in the end of the day, it's the government who assumes, or governments, the institutions that the government set in place that end up assuming the default risk if there is such a bust. So what should we do? 
what kind of reform should we uh, seek? As a guiding principle, I would argue that reforms should focus on tackling the causes of the crisis and not the symptoms. Symptoms are young people are no longer able to afford the deposit. So the government gave help to buy to try to address this symptom. A symptom is that there are few large house builders. One of the reasons why there are few large house builders is because the planning system is so incredibly complex that if you want to really game the system, you need to have a certain size as a firm. And another symptom is that developers are hoarding land. So, um, so there is a real so-called real options argument here. If there are few parcels of land that are made available and uncertainty is large, then there is a so-called real option that is very valuable. So it actually makes sense for developers to sit on the land rather than to build on it. It can make, economic, it can make financial sense for them, but that's only true in a development control system where there is so few land available for construction. So what are the real causes? The real causes are the broken planning system and its lack of fiscal incentives at the local level to permit residential development. And so my reform proposal arises from this guiding principle. I have only, in the interest of time, I only have two proposals. The first proposal is to reform the planning system. It's to introduce a rule-based zoning system. The idea is that the system should focus on correcting market failures. You should protect areas of outstanding natural beauty, for example. You should ensure the provision of public parks. You should preserve important historical buildings. But in areas that are not protected, you should designate zones with the presumption for development as long as certain rules are followed. The implication is we really should move away from the current development control system, which gives too much weight to NIMBYs and creates massive uncertainty in the development process. The second proposal for reform is to reform the tax system, to introduce proper local fiscal incentives to develop. Now, there are different ways of doing this. My proposal would be the following. Replace the council tax. You may keep the name council tax if you like the name, but replace it with a local tax on property value or better even land value with automatic annual revaluation. So your property tax may go up and down a bit from year to year, but because you do it automatically every year, there shouldn't be huge jumps each year. What I would then do is to phase out the stamp duty, and I would do this slowly, like with the mortgage interest uh, relief at source, uh, which was phased out in the late 1990s over a couple of years. 
I would phase out the stamp duty over a couple of years and correspondingly increase the weight of the local property value tax. So in the end of the process, there is more weight given to local taxes uh, on property value or to local taxes on land value. So why do I propose this? What are the advantages of this proposal? The first reason is that the stamp duty, which is a national tax and doesn't create any local incentives, is an incredibly inefficient tax. It hampers mobility, it makes people wanting to move less, and it hampers the functioning of the labor market and the housing market. People living in two large houses are discouraged to size down. People living in two small houses, they find it too costly to expand because of the stamp duty. So getting rid of the stamp duty is a very good thing. Now, why the local property value tax? Because it provides arguably strong incentives to local authorities to approve housing development. If they approve more housing, that raises their tax revenue that can be used for local public services, for local infrastructure, etc. There is another advantage of the property value tax or the land value tax, and that is that there will be fewer empty homes and there will be less empty land. Because it's more costly to keep the land empty, it's more costly to keep houses empty, if every year you have to pay a tax and you don't use it. I will talk about this in a second, but arguably this is politically not feasible. Um, if it's politically intolerable, what you could do is you could consider a local tax on the uh, developer's uh, finished scheme. Actually, Paul Cheshire recently wrote uh, a paper um, advocating this solution. I think it, it's a politically more feasible than introducing a property value or a land value tax. The general idea, however, is always to reform the tax system to align fiscal incentives to develop. So local authorities, residents and neighbors who bear the costs also ought to reap the benefits of development. Okay, this brings me to my last point, political challenges. Now, I was asked last year um, by the Treasury Select Committee to give evidence. And uh, it was nice, uh, Andrew Tyree, the, the chairman of the Treasury Committee, actually asked me, so if you were the mayor, if you were in charge of policy, what would you do? And when I was asked, I outlined my policies pretty similar to what I did now. And his comment at the end was, um, I wish you well at the polls. <laughs> so clearly, he thinks it's unlikely that I will get through with these, um, that I will be able to convince politicians with my reform proposals. So what are the reasons um, why might these reform proposals not be popular? Well, one of the reasons is that around 
of British people or homeowners, or you could call them home voters. It's homeowners voting at the local level. And what homeowners, home voters try to do is to protect their asset values. Then there are also landlords, of course, and landlords also have an interest to protect their rental income, right? So there are some vested interests of keeping the system the way it is. Then there is also an argument coming from behavioral science, and that is that people actually like avoidable taxes. We like the stamp duty because we can avoid it if we really want to. If you don't move, you don't pay the stamp duty, right? But people hate salient taxes, visible taxes. And the sad thing is that the land value tax and the property value tax are salient taxes. Then there is a third reason why these proposals are not very popular, and that is that the central government seems unwilling to give significant fiscal power to local governments. However, I think there is a glimmer of hope, at least. One reason why there is a glimmer of hope is because the crisis is increasingly becoming more serious. In fact, the home ownership rate has fallen since 2002 from nearly 70% to around 63% today. So that's a decrease of 7%, which is quite a lot in a, in a historical perspective. The private rental share has been growing quickly. So in other words, the pro-reform group, i.e. private renters, is growing stronger by the day. Consistent with this observation, pro-development and pro-reform movements have started to emerge. I would like to mention the YIMBY movement. I think some of the representatives may even be here tonight. YIMBY means yes in my backyard. And the interesting thing is this YIMBY movement appears to be spreading quickly across the UK. I think that's an encouraging sign. There is another glimmer of hope because I believe that many people think they are winners of the system when actually they are losers. And I will count myself as somebody who you, know, you might think is winning from the system, but actually I'm losing out. Let me explain. So people who recently bought the house, you bought the house four or five years ago, your capital gains have been absolutely staggering. Quite likely, it's more than you earn in, with your income, right? So people think they are better off. But the trouble is, if you are young, usually your housing needs expand. You want to have a, a bigger house. The trouble is that the bigger house has now become even more unaffordable. The one that has, you know, not just two rooms, but four or five rooms, that's now, you're now completely priced out. And I think one of the things that researchers like myself and the journalists can do is to make people aware of the fact that actually many people are losing the system in the system because we live in very 
cramped housing, and although there are capital gains from the from buying housing, we can't actually take advantage of it. We can only take advantage of it if we sell the house and move to a different country. But as long as you live in this country, you are stuck. Okay, there are more glimmers of hope, and that is the following. The British Social Attitude Survey asks every three years, would you support or oppose more, home being, more homes being built in your area? And the really interesting thing is that back in 2010, 29% of people supported this. 46 were opposed. So that's the NIMBY world we know. In 2013, really interestingly, it changed. Now 47% are in support and only 31% are against. And this is not a one-time thing. This appears to be a new trend in line with the, the fall in home ownership. In 2016, 57% said they would support more homes being built in your area, and only 24% opposed. Now, my, comes, my answer to Andrew Tyree, you know, policymakers should take notice of these changes in social attitudes um, that are going on. Okay, let me conclude. Planning serves an important purpose. It can improve welfare through correcting market failure. But the British planning system and the British tax system have serious design flaws. And these design flaws are largely responsible for the affordability crisis that we are facing. Existing policies such as help to buy do not tackle the causes of the crisis. They are ineffective at best and counterproductive at worst. What we really need if we want to tackle the affordability crisis is bold reforms. These bold reforms are politically challenging, but the only real hope, in my eyes, to solve the housing crisis. Okay. Thank you.